the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. I'm your host, Nate Elliott, as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Exodus. God had faithfully taken the children of Israel out of their enslavement in Egypt and provided for them through the desert wilderness. He revealed His nature through the giving of His moral law. He gave them a civil law to abide by. He also gave them a ceremonial law. Now God is appointing Aaron as priest, an intercessor between man and God. We join Pastor Will in Exodus chapter 28, verse 1. Remember, God made three promises to the nation of Israel when they were in Egypt. He said, listen, I'm going to do these three things. I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. I'm going to bring you into the promised land. And I'm going to be your God and you'll be my people. And we're dealing with that second promise. He's already brought them out of Egypt. And that second promise now, he's going to be their God. They're going to be his people. And he's explaining how that's going to happen. In chapter 24 of Exodus, they entered into a blood covenant with the Lord. And as a result, they said, we will do whatever the Lord tells us to do. And so the Lord says, and we will have a relationship together. And so he begins by bringing Moses up on the mountain by himself to explain to him how they will worship him. And they're going to worship him through the tabernacle. And so in chapters 26 and 27, we saw most of the pieces that make up the tabernacle. Uh, But obviously, that's just a building. Uh, You need people to serve in it. And so when we get to chapter 27, verse 21, the very last verse, God gave instructions for the oil that's to be used in the golden candlestick. And in it, in that, those instructions, it mentions that this will be the job of Aaron and his sons, the priests. And that's a perfect segue because in chapter 28, Moses receives the instructions for the priests. Now, these instructions revolve around two areas. In chapter 28, it talks about how they must approach God. And then in chapter 29, it talks about how they're going to serve him when they're in there. And this gets to the heart of a priest's job, which sheds light on the claim that Jesus is our great high priest. Like the tabernacle, we'll be looking as we go through this to see how these shadows find their substance in Jesus in order that we might worship him properly. And then there is a secondary thought because in the New Testament, it calls us a kingdom of priests. Therefore, someone told me I look like a priest today with the white undershirt and black shirt and stuff. I'm not going for that look. But, um, and they reminded me, they said, well, you are a priest. It's just we're all priests. So we all need to dress this way next week. The New Testament does. It calls us a kingdom of priests. And therefore, we actually see here a a bit of our role in the world through learning the principles established for the Old Testament priesthood. So chapter 28, verse 1. And take thou unto you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. Even Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. And you shall speak unto all that are wise-hearted, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron garments to consecrate him, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. And these are the garments which they shall make, a breastplate, and an ephod, and a robe, and a broidered coat, a miter, and a girdle, 
They shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. And they shall take gold and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen. So here in the first five verses, we find the summary of what the details we're going to learn in a little bit. He gives a summary of what we're going to learn as the Aaronic or Levitical priesthood. He says, And take thou unto you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister or serve me in the priest's office, the, the office or function, uh, position of the priest. It'll be Aaron... And then his four sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. So Aaron had already taken a leadership role as Moses' mouthpiece. You remember Moses said, I can't talk. And he says, take your brother, he can talk. So he's already func- been functioning in a leadership position. He's currently, while Moses is up on the mountain with the Lord, he's currently in charge of Israel with a man named Hur while Moses is up there. Aaron and his sons, we already saw in chapter 24, were invited by God with all the other leaders up into the mountain in chapter 24 where they saw the Lord and ate the covenant feast after the blood covenant. So it's been hinted that they will have a special role in leadership in, uh, in the service of God and in the tabernacle. Well, now we see what that role is. Aaron will be the high priest and his sons will succeed him. Now, at this point, we've learned already that God is going to select the priesthood from among the firstborn who were spared during the Passover. These would be those who would come and assist Aaron's family in all the activities of the tabernacle. Now, if you know a little bit of the Bible, you'll realize, you go, wait a second, that's not how it ended up, though. You're right. This will eventually change to the entire tribe of Levi. They will become the priests. That happens in Numbers 3, so we've got a ways to go before we get there. This is where we get the phrase, the Levitical priesthood or the Aaronic priesthood from. Now, we need to understand this because if you study the scriptures, you know that Jesus did not come from the line of Aaron or anyone else from the tribe of Levi, right? He is from the tribe of Judah, from the line of David. So Jesus has no claim to priesthood via the Aaronic order, okay? Just keep that in mind as we go through this because it will become important by the time we eventually finish this chapter. Now it mentions here in verse 2, And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. The holy garments means holy means set apart or dedicated for special use. And we're going to see this get some special garments for his sons and the rest of the priests too. But he would only wear these garments when serving in the tabernacle. He doesn't get to walk around in them just around the block. Hey guys, check me out. I'm the high priest. Nope. When he's not serving, he wears normal clothes like everybody else. But when he's in the tabernacle, he must wear these clothes. Why? Well, it mentions that they are for glory and for beauty. The word glory is the word honor. It means respect or dignity. Beauty, it just means to cause something to be attractive or shining. So these garments were to give Aaron dignity or honor to set him apart and then to cause him to be attractive or shining. So the purpose of these garments was to set Aaron apart from the rest of the people and to beautify the worship of God. You know, Israel would have learned to worship one way from the pagans. And the worship of God was to be distinct, with a dignity that surpasses their sensual, superstitious, and ritualistic methods. Remember when Elijah was up on the Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal? And they were having a contest to see which God was greater. And so they, they created this, this test where they had two altars, and whichever God caused fire to come down from heaven, that would be the one that, that won. 
And so, you know, the, the priests of Baal, they had all sorts of antics. They would dance around and they would get all crazy and work themselves up into a frenzy. They'd shout to God. They'd cut themselves to get their God's attention. In fact, you know, it's funny, Elijah kind of taunts him and he says, you know, uh, hey, uh, maybe you should like, you know, be louder. Maybe he's sleeping. You need to wake him up. Well, when they're all done, of course, there's nothing going on because their God isn't real. So then it's Elijah's turn. You know what he does? First off, he, I love it. He says, dump this thing with water, man. Just dump water on it so it's drenched. So you can't, there's no way anyone could even say that I conjured up fire through some trick or something like that. And then when it, there's just water, the thing's drenched. You know what he does? He just prays. He says, God, show these people you're real. <laughs> do, you, do you understand the difference there? There's no antics, no, no sensuality, no superstition, no rituals. The idea is that it was just the simplicity and dignity of the fact that God Almighty is real. And when Aaron would come out in those clothes, it would be a reminder that it's not like the pagan gods, that there's a difference to our God. But worship is also, not only is it to be different than the way the world thinks to worship God or their gods, but worship was also to be beautiful, shining in such a way to appear attractive to those who are participating. You know, it's been said that one of the biggest crimes is to make the Bible boring. Well, making worship dispassionate may be its equal. It's interesting because when you talk about that, people say, what do you mean by that? We can get into antics on worship too, can't we? You can get all sorts of superficial things that have nothing to do with the dignified worship of God. What I mean when I say dispassionate is the idea that we're just going through the motions. We're just doing it to do it. There's no sense of real in our hearts. We're thinking about what we're singing and our hearts are being poured out back to God. Now, for some of us who are more expressive, like me, you might show that in a way that other people might see, oh, wow, he's got a passion for God. Other people who might not be as expressive, it doesn't mean they're not having passion in their heart. I have a dear friend of mine who's a wonderful pastor, Calvary Chapel pastor. Love him. Dear friend. He never raises up his hands. He's kind of chill. You know, he's from Southern California. He's a surfer guy and he's just kind of chill. That's just how he is. Even when he teaches, you know, he teaches, he's laid back. He's got his hands in his pockets and he's talking to you just as if we're having casual conversation. He's not hyper like me, but he's incredibly passionate about the Lord. When I say dispassionate is when you just go through the motions of doing it. And that's not what it's to be. There should be a dignified yet supernatural quality when we gather to worship God so that those who are present know that we've been with Jesus. Amen? People should leave here tonight. They should leave here whenever we gather and they should go, man, Jesus was in that place, you know, because he is. The Bible says the Lord inhabits the praises of his people. Matthew 17, 8, after they were up on the Mount of Transfiguration, you don't need to turn there. I just want to read it to you. But it mentions after all these glorious events occurred that this is what the last statement was. It says that when they had lifted up their eyes after all the events were done, it says they saw no man save Jesus only. That's the whole focus of our worship. The people walk away going in our time in the word, in our time in song, in our time in fellowship, and they go, you know what? I, I left tonight knowing Jesus better, seeing Jesus more clearly. And if we've accomplished that, then worship has occurred. In verse three, we see that there are a special group of people who will make these clothes. And you shall speak unto all that are wise-hearted, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. The phrase wide-hearted, it just means to be skillful at heart. These were those who would have that innate ability to create things. And so these guys would, would be the ones that God had filled with his spirit to do this task. Sometimes 
sometimes we think that we glorify like preaching ministry or we glorify, you know, maybe music ministry, but there are so many other creative arts that are necessary. If you guys haven't checked out our new website, you need to because it's gorgeous. A lot of time and effort went into it and it's cool looking. It's a lot easier to find stuff and it's just, I go on there and I just feel peaceful when I look at it now serious. It's just very well done. That was from God filled somebody with his spirit and empowered him to do it. And that's, that's the point that of things that we do, we want to do things skillfully. We want to do things with beauty because that honors the Lord as well. Here we find a third purpose for these garments. It mentions to consecrate Aaron that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. This word consecrate is similar to the word holy. It means to be dedicated to God's service. Aaron was not holy on his own. He needed these garments to cover him with the Lord's holiness. And that's interesting because for worship to truly be meaningful, it needs to come from someone who's been clothed in the righteousness of God. The Bible says in Proverbs 28 verse 9, and it's the, uh, the prayers of the unrighteous are an abomination to the Lord. Now, what do you mean by that, Will? Well, I don't mean that when you're crying out to God as a, someone who you know you have a need for God, that that's an abomination. But it's the idea of someone, here it says in 28.9, he that turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be an abomination. So here's how this works. God, I know you want me to live my life a certain way, but I really don't care about that. I really just want you to fix all my problems. That's an abomination to the Lord. When someone is not a believer, and they've not been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, they've not bent the knee to Jesus, and yet they still want to pray and ask God to help them out with all sorts of stuff, the Lord's saying, listen, we need to get in the right relationship first before I can do that. I want to bless you. It's not that he, he hates those people or doesn't love those people. It's just we're separated from, our, from God by our sin. And he wants that that needs to be right first before the Lord can do that in our lives. So for worship to be meaningful, we need to be clothed in the righteousness of God. And so Aaron's going to be clothed in these holy garments. What are they? Verse 4. These are the garments that they shall make. A breastplate. And that's kind of a, a wrong idea because when you think of a breastplate, you think of you know, some really buff guy, you know, in some kind of metal type of canister that he's walking around in and no one can harm him. The word here actually just means a chest plate. We're going to see it's like a square piece that just kind of stands here. For those of you Star Wars nerds, it's kind of like Darth Vader's like button thing here. It's kind of like that. People are like, I can't believe the pastor just said that. Next it mentions an ephod, which is a sleeveless garment. It was a mix between a vest and a tank top, but a bit bulkier. We'll get into that in a moment. A robe, which is just an outer garment. It's the garment that most people would see when you're walking around. A broidered coat, which would actually be your inner tunic that would go down about to the knees. A miter, which is just the turban, the traditional Middle Eastern turban that's worn, although this one's going to be a little different. And then it mentions a girdle or a sash or a belt. And it says, They shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. And they're going to make them, it says, from gold, blue, purple, and scarlet, and fine linen. So the first piece we're going to tackle is not the order that was given to us here, but the ephod. So verse 6. They shall make the ephod of gold, of blue, and of purple, of scarlet, and fine twine linen with cunning work. It shall have the two shoulder pieces thereof joined at the two edges thereof, and so it shall be joined together. And the curious girdle of the ephod, which is upon it, shall be of the same, according to the work thereof, even of gold, of blue, and of purple, and scarlet, and fine twine linen. So here's how this thing works. If you ever played uh, football and you're injured and you kind of had like a flak jacket, you know, to kind of protect the ribs, it's kind of similar to that. So this piece, it had like a, a front piece, a back piece. It had no sides, so you were open here. That's why I say it's almost like a sleeveless tank top. You had open on the sides, and it didn't really slip over your head. It just 
came on the front, came on the back, and it was connected with these shoulder pads up top. The way you made it is they made it by fine twined linen with cunning work. It means they would finely twist together these different materials. The materials were the blue yarn, the purple yarn, and then the scarlet yarn, and then the linen. Now, we've already learned about those materials from the curtains of the tabernacle, so I don't want to go into that too much. But then it mentions there's one other part that goes into this, gold. The tabernacle curtains were made of these materials, but this time, gold wire thread is woven into it also. Gold is very interesting if you study this. I could have spent hours on this because I was just blown away by all the things I was learning. Do you know there's no known natural substance that can destroy gold? None. It can be dissolved by chemical means, but even then it remains gold, just in a widely dispersed state. It can be beaten into such thin leaves that one grain will cover 56 square inches. In fact, a single grain may be drawn into a wire thread that stretches over 500 feet. Gold is just so fine, that's how you can do it with it. So they would actually pound it into this thin wire like if you were sewing, and they would weave it in, twist it in with all these other pieces of yarn. So this would create a dazzling piece of clothing. Uh, but also one that would endure through time. It mentions here in verse 7, it shall have two shoulder pieces. So instead of being joined at the side, it have a front and a back, which would be connected to a pair of shoulder pads on the top. And then verse 8, a sash on the bottom. Verse 8 says, and the curious girdle. Now, curious is not in the original language, Hebrew here, uh, just the word girdle. Back then, they didn't wear clothes. Like, I have a belt here, okay? I have a belt to keep my pants up. Back then, they would actually do that if you were where you had your robe and you wanted to do work, you would take the, your robe and you would tuck it into the sash and tighten the sash so that you could get work done and not have the robe be interfering. The sash here, the girdle, was a normal part of the outfit that people would wear with their robe. But this is different because normally sashes were separate from your clothes. This would be a part of the ephod. So you'd have the front plate, the back plate, the shoulder pads, and then hanging from it, you'd have the sash, okay? And so the sash here, its job would be a part of the ephod, which is what makes it unique, which is why the King James translators added that word. This sounds like an awkward piece of clothing. Like you put the thing on and you're like, how does it even stay there? It is awkward, which is why there's more to it. Verse 9. And you shall take two onyx stones and grave or engrave on them the names of the children of Israel. Six of their names will be on one stone and the other six names of the rest on the other stone according to their birth. So in birth order. With the work of an engraver in stone, like the engravings of a signet ring. So when you would make a signet ring to stamp your, you know, say this is legit, you would carve your symbol into it, maybe a letter that symbolized your name. He would say, do it just like that. Carve into it the names, like you would do the engraving of a signet ring. Shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the children of Israel? And you shall make them to be set in ushes of gold. The word ushes or ushes is circular settings. So on these shoulder pads, you would have these circular gold settings, and in them you would set these stones. And then there'd be latches that would go from the bottom part of the ephod that would latch in there and then the back part and latch in there. So it's almost like suspenders, except they're made of gold. I don't have any of those kind of suspenders. You had these, you know, like golden suspenders and then you had this blue, red, purple and gold shining thing you'd wear in the front to be on the back and it had shoulder pads with these stones in there to keep them in place. Why is he wearing this thing? Verse 12. And you shall put the two stones upon the shoulders of the ephod for stones of memorial unto 
the children of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord upon his two shoulders for a memorial. And you shall make the ushas, the settings of gold, and two chains of pure gold as the ends of wreathen or twisted corded work shall you make them and fasten the wreathen chains to the settings. Aaron here, as he is going into the tabernacle to worship, he would carry these stones on his shoulders. And therefore it says that they would be for a memorial to him. So it was there to remind Aaron and all the future high priests that they were representing the entire nation before God. What a heavy responsibility. And I don't know how big these things were, but you put them on, I imagine you've got some weight on your shoulders. They, you didn't ignore them. And so he would be presently aware at all times that that weight was upon him. He was carrying the entire nation before him when he went before God. So don't mess it up, Aaron. <laughs> but also notice earlier in verse 12, it mentions that they are also a memorial unto the children of Israel. These stones serve to remind not just Aaron, but Israel that when they saw the high priest, that this man was their representative. Thus, in a sense, if God accepted him, the high priest, then God accepted all of them. And isn't that an awesome promise? Every time they saw the priest going in and out and that God was okay with that, it encouraged them and reminded them that God had accepted them. And, and here we see the two basic functions or roles of the high priest. Number one, to represent God to the people. He would go out before the people and he would represent God to them. And, and then secondly, to represent the people to God. He would go in before for the Lord as their representative to present them and their needs and their requests and their heart's desire to the Lord. How does the ephod point to Jesus? Well, when we looked at the fabric used for the curtains, we explained how the blue represented heaven. The sky is blue. That's a common reference that the Old Testament scriptures use. The scarlet is actually like a clay color and it represented earth. And therefore the purple, which is the in-between, it spoke of the incarnation, heaven and earth combining. So we already talked about that. I don't want to spend too much time on that. We're going to see a lot in the priest's garments. So the, the high priest speaking to us about the incarnation, the idea that God became man. The fine white linen, we also learned, was a symbol of human righteousness. So the idea is that's woven into it too, that the high priest was to be a righteous man. Jesus was perfectly righteous, right? He knew no sin. And then gold was a symbol of God's purity. So used together here, we see God's purity coming to earth and living life as the perfect man. Heaven meeting earth in Jesus. So it's a picture of the incarnation. But what's my point? The ephod does point to the incarnation of Jesus as God who became man, but so much more. See, it identifies Jesus as the God-man who is our priest right now. And this is one of the premises of the book of Hebrews. So turn to Hebrews chapter 2 with me. Now, a little bit of introduction. The book of Hebrews is written. It doesn't tell us who the author was. There's lots of ideas out there. That's not important right now. But the writer was writing to Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians, who were being persecuted for their faith. They were thinking about going back to Judaism, forsaking Jesus, and going back to Judaism because it was so hard. If you've seen Fiddler on the Roof, you remember there's a scene in there where his daughter, Tavier's daughter, marries a Russian young man. He's not Jewish. And so because of this, she has now left the faith, so to speak. And so when she comes to plead with him to listen to her and to talk to her, she says, Papa, I'm your daughter. And he turns to her and he says, I have no daughter. My daughter is dead. If you ever left the Jewish faith, that's how they treated you. They wouldn't, they treated you if you were dead. So if you came to buy, they wouldn't sell to you. If you needed to sell, they wouldn't buy from you. They wouldn't interact with you at all. So you can imagine how difficult it was to be a Jewish Christian who has left the faith, so to speak, and now no one will buy from you, no one will sell to you, no one will interact with you. And you don't have anything in common with the Gentiles, so you really feel alone. 
So they were thinking of going back to those Old Testament sacrifices, going back to Judaism. The writer of Hebrews is explaining throughout this book that there's nothing to go back to because that's all a shadow and Jesus is the substance. So it fits really well with what we're studying in Exodus. Hebrews 2, verses 16 and 17, check this out. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, that's Jesus, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. He was born as a Jewish man. Wherefore, because of this, he took on flesh the incarnation. Wherefore, in all things, it behooved him, or it had to be made this way, that he was made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful, what? What does it say? High priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. From the very beginning, he begins to establish that Jesus is our high priest right now. And as such, when we look at these garments, we're going to find the incarnation all throughout them. Now, when you look at the ephod, Jesus carries us each by name on his shoulders as he represents us to the Father. In 1 John, you don't need to turn there, but if you're taking notes, it's in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and you're familiar with it, for it says this, My little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. See, he's the one who goes before us and he represents us to the Father. He carries us on his shoulders by name and represents us to the Father. And see, Jesus, he came out from the presence of the Father to show us what he was like. So he's doing the function of the priest. In Hebrews 1 verse 3, it mentions that Jesus is the express image of the Father. So not only does he represent us before the Father, but he represents the Father to us. Remember when Philip was with Jesus in those last hours before he was going to go to the cross? And Philip said, Jesus, just show us the Father and that will be enough. And what did Jesus say? Philip, have you been so long with me that you don't know that having seen me, you've seen the Father? So he comes out. He came out from heaven. He came down and took upon himself our form, our nature. And as a result, he showed the Father to us. So it's so much more than just the idea of God becoming man, but God becoming man as our high priest. And you know what's awesome? Because he was accepted by the Father, when we see him, we can know that we are accepted by our faith in him as well. Jesus is our high priest. He goes before us to God and intercedes on our behalf. This means that he knows our struggles, having lived on this earth completely human. This also means he is for us. He is not against us. He loves us. He is a great high priest. While we are in this time of a global pandemic, don't be afraid to call and ask for assistance or for prayer. Our office may be closed, but you can still reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.